Hello and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney, and my favorite gaming word for the past 10 years running has been anti-penultimate. With me as always is my co-host Mike Walker, and his favorite gaming word for three years running is shut the hell up, Mark. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. How are you this day? I am very, very well, despite the fact that the weather wishes clearly to kill us, and at the very least, to, to tell us not to travel. Uh, but it's excellent board gaming weather. It's true. I always wondered why what the settlers were thinking. It's like, hey, let's settle here where it's snow and death for six months of the year. I, I don't know what they were thinking. Well, a man no less than Voltaire characterized our fine country as quelques arpents de neige, uh, or a few acres of snow, which then became a Wallace War game. So you see, it all connects back to board gaming. It's a cycle. Yes, Absolutely. All right, so we are going to be doing what we are always doing. We're going to be talking about games we played this week. We're going to be talking about the news and why it doesn't matter. Then we're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is going to be an expansion, namely Scythe the Wind Gambit. And then we're going to talk about our topic of the day, which is everything's got to have a campaign. And this will uh, partially be a topic and partially me being complaining for a while and Walker telling me that I'm being irrational. In other words, this will be an episode of our podcast. So what did you play this week, Walker? This week... I'm just going to talk about two party games that I talked about. I know it's weird. Don't give me the look. I actually went out of my bubble and played party games. The first one being Monikers. Uh, it's a Kickstarter party game where it's a whole bunch of uh, people or subjects. And it's a set deck which the group cycles through and gets to know. And so the first round, you can say anything you want except for what's on the card to try to get people to guess your subject. And then the next round, you can only use one word. And then the third and final round, you can only use charades and to act it out and use sound effects. I thought it was very well done and I enjoyed it. And the second one, my last one I'm going to talk about is One Night Ultimate Werewolf. And the only reason I'm bringing this up because, in fact, it is a terrible game. Don't get me wrong. I know why people like it. It's pretty well, you put down a bunch of rolls, they get shuffled around, you have no idea who you are, you laugh, you talk about it, you make things, there's no idea, you have no idea what you are anymore, in my opinion, of course this is all my opinion, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because of Town of Salem, it is a computer game, if you like Ultimate Werewolf or any of these hidden role games, check out a video game called Town of Salem, I think you'll really enjoy it. I still haven't tried Town of Salem, I really should. Given my enthusiasm for the Resistance, I agree with you. I think the One Night games are far too random. Uh, there's a Bruno Fiduti call a game called Masquerade where you don't know your role or not. Everyone has a role and you're not sure you know what it is, but at least if somebody messes with you, most of the time you know you've been messed with and so something might have changed. In all the One Night games, you don't know if something's changed or not, and that additional level of confusion I don't think benefits the game at all. Well, some people, like I said, I don't, I don't want to put my, maybe some people enjoy that. Like, it's sort of like a social interaction. It's like you're just sort of, you know, talking about it, making fun of each other, making up stories, saying, you don't know, oh, well, I think this guy did this, or, you know, you can totally, but that's the thing. You can totally try to manipulate the game on a basis of what you think you are, but you're not even that. So ah, it's sometimes frustrating, but anyway. I have no problem with games that are really just more social experiences, but the moment you start making complicated roles and victory conditions, then you're going to make me think that I'm actually playing a game. And when it becomes completely non-deterministic, or at least the kind of chaotic that leads you to having to just make a random guess at the start of things and then work on that presupposition, that's kind of where I get off the train. But you're right, to each their own. 
For my part, I've been playing more of Pandemic Legacy Season 2. We talked about this briefly before, and now I'm significantly deeper into the campaign. Again, we don't do spoilers here, certainly not for, for brief cuts, but the game has not improved its impression on me. For one thing, the component difficulties are now seriously starting to annoy me. There are a number of things that it does to obscure information to the player that is very, very, very consequential. And this issue is getting more and more prevalent as the game goes on. There are just a whole bunch of things that I feel the need to track that the game doesn't want to let me track. Or at least not easily. It's also the case that some of the components are just bizarrely designed. The cards aren't all the same size, even within the same decks. As you unlock stuff, the cards, be the decks become almost impossible to shuffle because some of them are just different dimensions. I'm not even talking about thickness, I'm talking about height and width. It's bizarre, given that this isn't expansion matching. When you print an expansion six months after the base game and you can't get the cards to match, that's annoying, but at least I can understand why. In this case, it's that the cards aren't the same, and it, it, it's, it's utterly mind-boggling. Uh, it's reasonably diverting. My, you know, we're going we're gonna to power through the campaign. Again, I, as, as we'll talk about later, my enthusiasm for legacy stuff has waned somewhat as time goes on. But if you like putting stickers on things, this is definitely lets you put stickers on things. So that's all I have to say for now. More, I'll have more to say once I finish the campaign. On that note, let's, I'm going to talk briefly about Charterstone and putting stickers on things and waning legacy. Like, wow. Like, talk about legacy for the sake of legacy. Like, rules that should just be in the book, but hey, we're going to put them on stickers so you can, like, what is this, like a collection thing? I remember when I was a kid, you know, you'd collect motorcycle books or hockey books with stickers. I, I It was very frustrating. I wanted there to be a game. I'm hoping we've only played two games. I'm hoping there's going to be more to it, but for now, it's just legacy for the sake of legacy so far. It's definitely the case that, and we'll be talking a lot more about this because we're talking about another Stonemeyer game, and we're going to be talking about everything having to have a campaign now. But my experience with the non-scythe products that Stonemeyer has put out have been pretty much uniformly negative. Sort of incredibly light, not terribly substantial, arbitrary with some really bad design decisions. Uh, Euphoria is, uh, their first published game is, I think, a, a genuinely bad design in a number of ways where it's not reasonably generic, light, consequence-free worker placement. And so I'm not terribly shocked that our first experiences with Charterstone have been just that, extremely superficial worker placement. It's a, it's a beautiful design. The physical design of the thing is great. I'm amazed that they were able to put it out at the low price point that they did, given all the manufacturing concerns that, that were no doubt present. It's very, very nicely done. But there's not a whole lot there. And yeah, we're only two games in. I hope with future games we're going to see more substance to it and... When we play those future games, both you and I will have more to say about the game. But True. yeah, I but share the way your the story is headed, right? But like you know, the legacy part. Like if you're going into it just for the legacy part, and we can see where the story is sort of heading, I'm very much looking forward to enjoying that part of it. But other than that, sure. Yeah. I, I also share your concern. We've talked about rule books before about the need for a single comprehensive rules document, or at least one. And the way that it introduces rules turns a very simple game into a game that's sometimes very difficult to understand. Not just because of the way everything is spread out, but because of the need to fit... I, I, maybe it's because they felt the need to fit everything on cards. But the number of rules questions we had for such a simple game boggles the imagination. 
And uh, I was talking with uh, a, a friend of mine online, and he was saying that they missed a card in the process of laying out the game, which is very easy to do because you're talking about dozens of cards all the time entering the system with stickers on them. He missed one, and as a result, there were several games which were borderline unplayable. And it wasn't obvious that they'd missed a card. They had to, after several games, they said, this is, this is very bizarre, things are, strange things are happening, let's spend the time of going back and recreating all the legacy steps we had to do from scratch. And it was only then that they made, they, they made the discovery. And I don't know if this is a common problem. If you've had this experience, let us know. But it's a troubling anecdote, and I think it's just generally an instance of, of what I say. The, the, the information load is poorly handled, I think. True, I was going to say, it even happened to us. Because remember, we, it says to pass around the cards, everyone takes a turn reading. And so someone was reading, and we interrupted them, or we asked a question, and they forgot to read the last paragraph, which which stopped a certain tree of the thing opening up. So luckily we caught it, And but anyway. Yeah. You're right. So additionally, I played a game called Sakura Arms. This is a game I talked about in our New Year's episode because I wanted to get it to the table because it's a two-player card battling game, and I love two-player two card battling games. Battlecon is a perennial favorite of mine. I adore Blue Moon. I think it's the uh, one of the best games ever made. And this is something that's been in Japan for a couple years, and it's got a bit of a following there. It's got a bit of a tournament scene, and it was put out by AEG last year under their Big in Japan line, which uh, strikes me as nothing but marketing nonsense, given that at least one game that I know of in the Big of Japan line uh, was designed by an American, submitted to an American publisher, and published primarily in America. So this is mostly just, uh, you know, marketing copy. But anyway, this was actually designed in Japan by a Japanese person and distributed in Japan. And it very much looks Japanese. It's got a very strong anime aesthetic. It's called Sakura Arms, you can imagine. It's really good. It is... It has a lot of the sort of the, 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 the Japanese design aesthetic in terms of minimalism, small numbers of cards and small number of uh, upfront rules, but the card interactions driving a lot of the gameplay. Very much like Love Letter. It's not as simple as Love Letter. Almost no game is. But Love Letter is one of those games where it's amazing that it works at all. Or R, which was republished as Brave Rats. Again, by both of those were by Seiji Kanai. And both of those games shouldn't work, but they do. Regardless of... I'm not a huge fan of Love Letter, but I'm amazed it works. Sakura Arms is absolutely fabulous. At the start of the game, you draft two fighters, essentially. That gives you an inventory of cards. And from those inventory of cards, you pick your deck. And... I was worried that this might be too intimidating for new players. I was worried that this might take too long or be too arbitrary or involve too much surprise or too much having to read the cards. But having played uh, three or four times now, every time it's been the, that great balance of at the start of the game, I don't know what they have. Within five minutes of the game starting, I know what they have and I have to know how to prepare for it. And you just learn more as the game goes on. It's absolutely it's really really good it's accessible it re rewards a little bit of learning but the learning you happens organically over the course of the game it's got great moments and cool reversals and risk and tension it's got an arc it's it's i i, I think it's a great great design i look forward to exploring it further why haven't i played this yet uh because you don't play two-player games with me walker because you hate me um Yes, I was going to say that's the same thing, same sort of thing as Shadespire, right? It's that, you know, creating those decks at the beginning, I think that's in there, like, to bring back those hardcore players, right? And so it doesn't make it always superficial. And like you said, it, sometimes it's a stumbling block to getting it to the table, but I think it's a required a requirement. Absolutely. What else you got for us this week, That's Walker? all I got for games played this week. Well, we did play Alien Artifact again. You, again, me for the first time. This is Portal's... Uh, Attempt at a 4X? Okay, well, let me, let me put it this way. I was... I don't I, think 
we want even let's not even say 4x when we talk about this game well no i think i think it bears mentioning and here's why because after playing the game i had my concerns and again we'll probably talk more about it later once i've i've had a chance to play it a few more times because i have some serious concerns about how conflict works but that's based on a sort of a priori intuitive view of the game we'll see whether it materializes i suspect it will but i've been wrong before it happened uh, i think it was 1986 the i don't know it, it's marked down somewhere in a calendar but I was surprised at how bad the reaction it's getting online because it's a functional rulebook, which for Portal is high praise. It's I like the graphic design. I think it's very visually striking. Some people don't like the art, and that's fine. The art isn't... But the graphic design itself is very striking. It's clean. It, it, it flows neatly. And so I was wondering why everyone hated it. And I think it's because they marketed it as a 4X game. They say so in marketing copy. They say so in descriptions. And it's not even remotely a 4X game. And they beat you over the head with it over and over during the game terminology and everything else. Yes. Just to try to, you know, push that home. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, that's what they tried to do and it did not deliver. It's just a, it's a, it's most, for the most part, it's a multiplayer solitaire tableau builder. And like I said, like I said last time, it just does not have that hook. It doesn't have that one unique thing. It doesn't bring anything new to the table. Yeah, I would... Even independently of my concerns, even if my concerns don't bear out about the combat, I would infinitely rather play 51st State Master Set, which I mentioned even independently of the fact that it's by the same publishers. It's the same kind of game. It's a it's a it's a tableau it's a card driven tableau builder, but it's got better player interaction. It's got a better instantiation of combat. It's got a better flow of how the rounds work, and I just, just it's just a superior design. So I can understand why people don't like yeah, it. And but. the theme is more prevalent, and it like it interacts with the game mechanisms yes. more than alien artifacts for sure. I agree. Another game we played last week was El Grande. This is the Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich classic, put out in 1995. This is a game where, for many people who who've played it and loved it, they've spent the 20 years since playing area majority games and asking them afterwards saying, is this as good as El Grande? And answering, no. I haven't found an area majority game as good as El Grande. It's one of those really classic Euros that has lots and lots of player interaction. Not in the way that an Ameritrasher would recognize, but it's almost purely interactive. It can be as in-your-face and confrontational as even the fightiest Ameritrash game. It's got subtlety, it's got heft, it's really, really, really good. Every time I play it, I wonder why I don't play it more often. And then I'm reminded, because usually there's one or two people at the table who look at the box cover, or look at the, look at the, the map, or look at the components, and they're, they've fallen asleep even before you start the rules explanation. And sure enough, it's themeless. The components are of the very classic minimalist sort of Euro design that we don't see much anymore, which is fine. I don't really miss that part of, of Euro design much, but damn, it's an amazing game. What did I, I didn't get too much of your... No, it's tight. Like I said, it's yeah. about the fourth time I played it. It's it's very good game. I play it in a heartbeat. It's got it's got everything you need. Like there's no uh, no dice, no randomness. You know what's going to happen. As long as you know, you know what cards are going to come up. So like I said, your deck is standard. It's one of these things where you're going to deplete your deck. Very few things get your cards back. I think it's an amazing game. It's also very... Uh, I, I also like one of the expansions. The Intrigue in the King expansion is, I think, interesting for uh, a slightly more deterministic experience. Uh, but just the base game out the box is fabulous. The only serious knock I have against the game is I wouldn't play it with fewer than four. I know lots of people who won't play it with less than five. 
And this is because the game setup is invariate. You don't block off any area of the map. You always use five stacks of action cards, so it, it naturally leads to five. But other than that, I have no reservations about El Grande. It's, it kind of shows up in print now and then. I think uh, another version of the Decennial Box or the Big Box came out a couple of years ago, so you should probably be able to track down a copy if you haven't tried. If you consider yourself a gamer and you haven't tried this game, do yourself a favor, track it down, get yourself uh, for uh, three or four buddies and uh, give it a shot. It is the granddaddy for a reason, and I don't think it's been obsoleted at all. Another game we played last week was Antiquity. This is the splutter design from 2004, so this is uh, before The Great Zimbabwe, this is before uh, Food Chain Magnet, and it's by uh, Jérôme Domain and uh, Joris Versinga, which is pretty much all their designs. This was uh, their first big box design after Roads and Boats, which was pretty much their first big box design. Before that, they did even weirder stuff. I remember playing a game they did called Bus, which is about public transit and time travel. That classic combination of things. Yes. It's it's a I mean quite frankly it's a bit of an overused theme I look at it and say oh well this is this is a train driver that can go that can travel in times like again anyway <laughs> so overused I really like antiquity I I like antiquity and food chain magnet are the two splatter designs that I really like they are perfect information almost well almost antiquity has explorer tokens which are a little bit of randomness but the tiniest tiniest bit they are brutally punishing. Euro, Euro management games where either the game or the other players will stab you in the face repeatedly if you make a single mistake. That, I think, is a serious problem Problem about those games. If it didn't have those games, they wouldn't be what they are, though. So every once in a while, it's what I feel like, but it's not what I feel like all the time, which is a bit of a problem because they're so dense that they reward experience. It's a bit of an awkward, awkward position. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's for intro gamers, it's brutal because it's so, you know, intro punishing or first three or four turns punish if you don't do exactly what you're supposed to then in these types of games i just end up not end up that's like a negative thing i meant more like i i know from the beginning that i'm just going to sit and play my own game and find my own ways to enjoy it and not worry about winning and i'm always rewarded like antiquity was it's a fantastically designed game and i think with multiple plays it'll just get more fun for sure yeah i antiquity has the benefit of being beautiful and very open. There's a lot of different kinds of ways you can approach the game. It's got multiple victory conditions. Uh, the problem, though, is that... Uh, well, problem. This is a matter of taste. It's more multiplayer solitaire than a lot of other uh, splatter games. And in fact, the only way to interact with other players is mostly to help punching them in the face. This is a game about decay, about resource exhaustion, about pollution, about death. And <laughs> the game... It's, like, it's grim. Yeah, like I said, I, I, when I was playing it, I, I did compare it to Lisboa, where you're always handcuffed. You're always, you're always under the gun. There's always pressure on you. You always need to feed, always pollution. You're always needing to do something. So it's a little less on the freedom and choices part. But still, not. I don't want to take away from it. With that, it's still fantastic. I'm going to have to, and I'm going to have to disagree with you a bit like that, because you mentioned that comparison to Lisboa, and here, here's the difference. When you said that you didn't like Lisboa because it was sort of a handcuffing experience, I thought I knew what you meant. And when you said it of antiquity, I was actually rather surprised, because the difference to me is, uh, a Euro game like Lisboa, it has a whole bunch of constraints that I consider to be more gamey and artificial. In antiquity... 
you really need to build all these buildings, and that's one of the key concerns and gather all these resources. All the requirements for those things always strike me as far more organic. So the building costs, for one thing, are very intuitive. It's usually just one wood or one stone, and that's more or less all, all that any building costs. But uh, you then need a person to man the building most of the time, and that's reasonably straightforward and intuitive, and you need to be able to fit it in your city, which again is reasonably intuitive and straightforward. You have this piece, you know whether you can fit it, and if you don't have it, you need to go get more space. And that feeds into the general theme of having to constantly expand because you're salting the land behind you and and, and leaving it with pollution. And it's a, a complex, heavy game, but the rule set is relatively straightforward, and the constraints strike me as organic, not to not to make a pun on the fact that the constraints are based on land and resources. In games, in other heavy Euro games where it's always like, well, you know, you need to be this high up on this track and you need to have this combination of seven different resources and you need to have unlocked this card, blah, blah, blah. Those those feel handcuffy to me because then I feel like there's this narrow path that I have to tread. With Antiquity, it's more that I have all these organic constraints on my action because the game is out to get me, but the rule systems itself are clean enough that it doesn't strike me as having that same tone. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. In Lisboa, there are like artificial constraints. I agree. And in in antiquity, they definitely seem very thematic, but I still think they're there in both cases. You're right. It, It is a game that constrains a lot of your action. It's true. So that's all I've got for games that we played last week. So let's move on to the news and why it doesn't matter. The uh, first bit of news, which again is very appropriate given our uh, choice of feature game, is that the last, uh, well, the next and possibly last expansion to Scythe has been announced. It's going to be called Rise of Fenris. It's going to be designed by Jamie Stonemeyer and, uh, sorry, Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games and Ryan Lopez de Venaspre. And very much like the Wind Gambit, it is, it's grown out of a number of fan ideas. Uh, from Board Game Geek about fan expansions and, and, and ways to mod the game. Uh, do you have any thoughts about this upcoming expansion, Walker? Sounds very interesting. And like you said, it's designed with uh, just a normal you know fan of the game. He's That's the other person that is the designer. It's just the fan. He's like partnered up with him. Same thing with uh, the Wind Gamut. was just another player who made an expansion. They teamed up together. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. That's that's more like I said. I, looked, I, I watched some uh, an interview... You should check it out. Uh, it's on if you go to the board games forums under the the Rise of Fenris. You'll see they did an interview with Jamie Stegmeyer and the other designer where they talk about what's coming up in the expansion, and it's very interesting. So there's going to be tiles. There's going to be a campaign system. Cough. There's going to be there's all sorts of, all sorts of speculations because they announced the component count. Right, how many pieces are going to be? So there's all sorts of speculation. Is there going to be another race? Is there going to, you know, what's going to be in there? So we'll have to see. Are you implying that uh, German people and Polish people are not the same race? Faction. There'll be factions. We hear it so very wrong. Games regret the error. (laughs) Yeah, the component count is interesting. Uh, Of course, what people are clamoring for now is. Will we get custom tokens? Will we get the new inserts? Will we get 100? Now, I saw Jamie Stegmeyer on the forums comment that he doesn't think that there's going to be a custom token replacement for this because there's well over 100 cardboard tokens. And to this I say, you, sir, are naive. I would be, I'm willing to, I would lay a little bit of money on the notion that somebody somewhere is going to produce a custom set of tokens for this and probably bring it to market because that is just what the fan base is like right now. Well, the hint that the 
thing I got about was that these tokens aren't going to be like an every game type of thing. Some Doesn't these, matter. Some I I agree. But I'm just saying some of these tokens are just going to be <laughs> just for the campaign system or just for one module of it. So maybe the thinking is that may, that his thinking would be that they wouldn't go through the trouble. Little does he know that we want them. Yeah, this seems to be the case. It's in business. It's tragic when you expect that there's going to be a demand. And it's not there, and then you end up with a whole bunch of unsold inventory. And of course, this happens in board games all the time. But sometimes, as and as fans, and having a fan perspective, it's a little bit easier. You can see a designer saying like, eh, no one's really going to want this, but I'll, I'll do it just because, and I'll probably only sell five copies. Uh, that, after all, was uh, Jamie's attitude towards the Legendary Box. He's like, well, look, I'll do this small thing. Uh, I'll just have one print run. I'll sell it at slightly below MSRP because only a small number of hardcore people are going to want it. And sure enough, it sells out and now people want a, want a second print run. And that I think the same thing is going to happen with any sort of add-on bling for this product for Time Immemorial. Of course, not for Time Immemorial because he says that this is going to be the last major expansion. He doesn't see... It, it's a bizarre statement because he says, unless he comes up with... He doesn't anticipate coming up with any bright ideas, but given that the past two expansions were driven in no small part by bright ideas that were from the forums, who knows what's going to come up in the future. So maybe this will be the last, maybe. Well, I'm hoping it's the last. Like I've seen games just get bogged down with expansions. You open yeah. the box, you just don't know what to do. You close the box, you grab something else instead. Yeah, and I think in some ways, I think that bridge might have already been crossed, but more on that later. Got anything else in the news, Walker? I've got two things. The first one I'm going to talk about is Seal Team Flicks by WizKids. I th- at first there was like the clunking of my eyes rolling when I saw it, but you know, after playing some of these other games, I think this might be fun. It's one of these things where I'm going to have to see it. It's either going to go one way or the other. Yeah, I, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm adult enough to admit that I'm kind of excited for this. so from what i read it's like you take a seal team in you're gonna be flicking discs around you're gonna be rolling dice there's gonna it's i think it's gonna be interesting yeah it's it it looks like it's gonna be warfighter the dexterity games yep and uh every time a strange dexterity game hybrid has come out i found it at the very least enjoyable like catacombs is a little too long for my taste but i love what it does ascending empires is is a great game i think it's a uh, uh, fabulously innovative so i'm looking forward to see, seeing what they do with it as we said when we talked about dexterity games even the really really simple ones that don't do anything interesting are usually reliably fun and so and the room for doing something interesting with dexterity games is huge so we'll see what they do with it sure it's quickly on dexterity games i'm going to shoehorn something in quickly i didn't have this on my list but i read up on it this morning Carnival Zombie 2nd Edition mm. is not dead yet. And speaking of dexterity games, it's this is a zombie game. If you haven't played it yet, it's a really, really neat uh, board game that has a dexterity element where the hordes of zombies are coming in. And as you kill them, you have to pick up the cubes, which represent the zombies, and drop them onto this, you know, two by three piece of cardboard from, you know, a certain height. And they have to stay on the cardboard as the zombies pile up. And any zombies that fall off go back onto the board. So it's, I think it's going to be interesting. I hope it comes through. It's going to be a Kickstarter. We'll see if it's been now two and a half years since they said they're going to do it. But they've, you know, kept up posting. So we'll see if it actually comes up. That'll be interesting. The mere fact that the demand has persisted through all this time shows that I think the game probably has legs. It's got a devoted fan base. So I'm looking forward to it. Another bit of news that I've got is, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit sanguine about this, a little bit less sanguine about this. This is uh, Don Eskridge of The Resistance, 
uh, and The Resistance is one of my top ten all favorite all time favorite games. I think The Resistance is a, is a work of pure pure genius that subsequent designs have failed to learn from. I think every subsequent design in that space since The Resistance has made things worse. Uh, I think Don Eskridge got it right the first time. Uh, his next game is going to be called Black Hole Council, which has a, a fascinatingly heartless theme. This is about corporations flinging planets into black holes for fun and profit. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I am looking forward to anything Don Eskridge ever does. On the other hand, his last design, Abandoned Planet, did not strike me as particularly good. It is one of those games that says, this is a game about backstabbing and coordination, and then doesn't have mechanisms or a play experience that leads you in that direction. So as a result, it's just a relatively pedestrian resource gathering affair. And the deal-making becomes just sort of straightforwardly obvious. It's like, eh, you want to do this thing? Sure. And then that's about it. So uh, I've I've read the rule book. I've looked at it. Black Hole Cancel. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. But anyway, I I, I I don't know. It has a lion person and purple and blue on the box. So that's right. It, it doesn't have a lion person and it doesn't have purple or blue on the box. <laughs> it must be a different one that I'm thinking that of. It is a vile calumny. What do I have? I have Mantic putting out a game, Hellboy, the board game. I saw that, yeah. We can hope for the best. I guess. If they're using that art set, that would be great. How do you make those into minis, though? Like that That's an art style that I, I, I... Maybe you can do it, but I hope they've got a really, really, really good sculpture because if they want to evoke that particular art style in 3D, I don't know if that's possible. If they'd done it more in like the, the, the movie style, then I could imagine minis pulling that off, but that's stylized and art. And Mantic on top of that. I don't know. I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying that they've been terrible, but I don't remember ever being blown away by a Mantic miniature that I can think of off the top of my head. Sure, but that's that's largely because, and I respect this, they're, I, I don't know whether they would phrase it in this way, so I apologize if this runs counter to your to your, to your marketing stance. They're kind of more the, the budget miniatures. Uh, I was about to say, they've made it so people can afford to get in. Which is great. Which is, yeah, I'm not, I'm not faulting it. I'm just saying, when you put what we just talked about together with, like, trying to capture that art style True. in a figure, Mantic would not be the first people I would turn to. That's a good point. So we'll see what happens there. And that is it for the news. So let's talk about our feature game. Why don't you introduce that to us, Walker? Our feature game is not actually a game. It is an expansion called The Wind Gambit for Scythe. We already talked about it a little bit. It's by Kai Stark and Jamie Stegmeier. It is a expansion that introduces seven airships, one for each faction, eight cards, like uh, eight groups of eight cards, sorry, three groups of eight cards of which uh, give you rules for the newly introduced airships and also give you a new endgame scenario. I have to say that my uh, experience with the expansion has been a bit mixed. I think it's a good product. I don't regret picking it up. But at its best, when it's really singing, it provides other ways of interacting with other players. A lot of the airship abilities are very interactive in uh, a slightly more subtle way than the combat. And because the combat is so blunt, and because the rest of the game is so non-confrontational, combat tends to be rare, which is part of the design. That was part of the design intent, and I think it captures it, it meaningfully. Uh, and the airships tend to provide other ways of interacting with the other players, and I think that part is is really good, and it, it adds to the play experience. At its worst, though, and I've got a number, a number of other concerns, but at its very worst, it seems to upset the balance between the different factions rather considerably. And uh, there, there are two examples that spring to mind. One of them is whenever you have 
uh, a version where the airships can carry workers, which is one of which half roughly half the time the airship will be able to do. That seems to really dis- uh, disadvantage the blue faction because the blue faction's special power is that their workers can cross rivers. Well, if everyone's workers can cross rivers now, then bl- blue is sitting there and they're having a little bit less fun staring at their muskox and, and wondering why they're not special anymore. And in the game with special powers, you want people to feel special. You want people to be able to do something that nobody else can do. And, and whenever you introduce an expansion that blunts that, not so hot. The other uh, example is that green and purple, the two expansion factions, they their powers are only balanced based on the fact that they can never double move. It, when, once they can double move, their other abilities start to overwhelm uh, the, 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 the balance of the other factions. And some of the airship abilities let people double move, let everyone double move right from the start of the game. And when that happens, blue, uh, green, and purple really seem to have a little bit of an easier time of things to possibly the detriment of the balance. So those are just two examples. There are some other ones that I could, I could point to. I'm not going to stand up and assert that Scythe was the best balanced game of all time, but it does seem like this expansion has somewhat upset things a little bit, and I'm not a huge fan of that. True. Well, to counterpoint that, because I know you and I both talked about blue being diminished, but we have to also remember it's only that one area where the airship's moving to, right? Everywhere else, like the blue ship, the blue player can move their workers, you know, anywhere over rivers, whereas, you know, only everyone else can just, you know, move to with the airship. I'm not saying it's it's huge or anything, but and they're also the, the one that takes the white power and, you know, diminishes the white power a bit by being able to choose more on the cards. Yes. And there was another one that, of course, I didn't write down because I'm an idiot. But it also minimizes another unique power of one of the other factions. Yeah. It makes me wonder if they... I don't want to be so cruel as to speculate that they kind of sort of ran out of ideas, but the fact that so many of these airship powers kind of duplicate faction powers is a bit unfortunate. Well, they might have just said, well, these are not balanced, but these are sort of already working with sure. all the other powers. If we were to introduce something else, it might, you know, uh, interact with the rules in a way we don't know. And we they already knew that these ones work, so they sort of just used those instead. Sure. Uh, perhaps for disclosure, though, we should we should start out by saying... And I think you and I are roughly on the same page about the status of Scythe. We both enjoy Scythe, and I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that we both think that Scythe is a very good but not great game. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, I We've both done reviews of the game before in our, in our past lives as video reviewers before YouTube gave us the cease and desist based on our horrific physical appearance. And... Uh, Scythe, I think, has has held up well. Roughly, you know, I, I really enjoyed it then. I really enjoy it now. I don't think it's the second coming, and I think that it's, uh, you know, it's it's eclipsed by other other designs in the roughly same space. But it's beautiful. It's fun. It's reasonably accessible. The components are great, and and it's fun to play. Uh, and honestly, before this, I know that some people have played dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and they swear up and down that you know one faction is stronger than the other. I never had serious balance concerns until we played this this expansion, and it's really blatant how it's just like, okay, blue, you're not as fun anymore, or okay, green, here's a leg up, or white, here, you know, you're less special now, and that was one of the disappointing elements that I found of this expansion. I can see that for sure. So I just wanted to talk about quickly how it works. At the beginning of the game, you have two decks for the airships. You're going to do an attack card and a defense card. I'm sure they have other names for them, but it's going to tell you whether you're going to be carrying resources or you're going to be carrying meeples with the airships. It's going to tell you how how far the airships move and any special abilities they have. If the airships carry resources, it's going to be usually an ability that lets you spend those resources to get a special ability. And then the other thing that we haven't 
talked about yet is the alternate game endings, right? So there's a deck of eight cards. You're going to draw one of these cards, and it's going to change how the game ends. Instead of placing six stars up on the track, there'll be all sorts of different different ways you can do it. What are your thoughts on that so far? That was, honestly, that was the part of the expansion that I was most looking forward to, not because I had any problem with the end game condition prior. I thought the end game uh, condition of Scythe is just fine, but I was looking to see what else could be done. And I was I was also a bit disappointed, to be frank, on those for two reasons. A number of them are relatively uninspired, like the one that just says play 20 turns. Just play 20, everyone gets 20 turns and that's it, the game's over. Fine, whatever. Uh, you know, it, it, I appreciate that no doubt there was no trivial amount of design work coming to that number, that 20 is the appropriate number of turns. But the other ones, the ones that are really, uh, the ones that are more unique that are keyed off of the game ends when somebody controls this many territories or the game ends when the following conditions are met. Uh, all of the ones that I've seen also have the secondary condition of or when someone places their sixth star. And I look at these and it's like, you're not really... It's not, a bit, not as big a change as I wanted, especially when uh, some of them are not especially likely to happen. Like, for example, the one where it says control, uh, control 10 territories... And then the game ends at the end of your turn. Well, if you're playing a five, six, five or six player game, or even a four player game, that's not likely to happen. So basically, you're just playing with the six stars. Which again, I didn't have a problem with. But a little more variety would have been nice. A, a more genuine change to the system. I don't know how that would have been, but I don't get the big bucks. No, I enjoyed them all so far. It was funny, as when I was watching that interview, it was funny to see that Jamie Stegmar's favorite card was the one I, I hate the most. Was the one where, if you finish the game and you think you've won, and then you tally all the points up, this is the hurtful part. It's like, no, the person who ended the game didn't actually win. Then we're all going to put all of the money back. And it's, I didn't really specify, I even looked in the rules, it doesn't really specify, do you lose all your money? What if you want to do ability that costs coins? Do you keep that separate? I have to look into that. I'm not sure. But then you take another turn, which gives the person that ended the game another chance to actually win. So just seems awfully painful. Yeah, multiplying the opportunities to do endgame scoring is not a good design feature. And I'm... This was was true, actually, something that we were discussing with respect to alien artifacts. Anytime endgame scoring is easily three or four times the number of points you'll get over the course of the game, so you're really not in a position of knowing who's doing well, is unfortunate. Scythe doesn't have that problem. You can usually look at someone's board position the number of stars they've got out and what they're doing on the board and get a good sense of how they're doing. But that doesn't mean that I want to increase the number of times when I do endgame scoring. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so yes, I do have some other points. I want to do, would you play Scythe without it? Yes. If you had it. Like, I mean, you'd... you'd and which... Well, expect- no, let, let, let's, not, let's not breeze past that because for me, that's an indication of... Again, I don't regret having it, but there are expansions where I probably won't play the game without it even when I, I don't think that they fix basic problems. For example, Core Worlds, the base game of Core Worlds, I think is just fine and doesn't have any serious problems. Uh, but I will never play it without the first expansion just because I, I I love it and I think it just adds considerably to the fun. I probably would think twice before playing a game of Eclipse unless they had all the expansions, even though I know the second expansion is kind of wonky in a number of ways and, and has some potentially unbalanced stuff, just because it's a game where I want as much stuff as possible. I'm not sure Scythe is a game where it wants as much stuff as possible, so I I, I would happily play the base game 
even without the uh, the two expansion factions either, come to think of it. Even though I don't have any problem with... Uh, well, we'll get, we'll get to that point in a second. Sure. Okay, the Lords of Waterdeep would be the same for me. Like, I would not play Lords of Waterdeep without the expansion. Yeah. And then, so that, yeah, like I said, it goes in the next one. Which one, which expansion would you buy first? Like, say, if you're getting into Scythe the first time, would you buy the Invaders from Afar, or would you get the Wind Gamut first? Which one do you think is more important? I would get Invaders from Afar. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Why do you disagree? I just, I like I said, I, I'm enjoying the Wind Gambit a lot. That's all I said. I'd, I'd get that because I think it really brings the game uh, new life. Say if you've played Scythe a bunch of times and having the alternate endings, having the airships. We didn't really touch on the fact that they're all the same sculpt, but let's just move past that. But yeah, it's it's a bit disappointing, but they are lovely figures and they're massive. I ain't going to whine about it. We have leaders that are all different. We have uh, workers that are all different. We have mechs that are all different. Then we're going to bring airships out that are all the same. Yeah. Disappointing. It, well, they are huge and lovely. But yes, I am a bit disappointed that they're all the same. If I had a 3D printer, I'd start looking into alternatives. Um, if you want to send me a 3D printer, go ahead. In in terms of the components, though, it, it is a bit... I'm a bit... I don't know if disappointed is the word. It's strange. I think with the airships, at that point, you kind of start to need the bigger board extension. So with Scythe, there's just the, the normal size board, and then it, you can buy the you know the ten buck uh, extension that goes down the side and makes all the hexes bigger. And honestly, I've played the the Wind Gambit on the normal size board, and almost wherever the airship goes, it gets very crowded. And it made me wish that I had the extension in a way that. Uh, I didn't wish on other basic games, even when there are lots of resources piling up. It's, you know, it's it's something to keep in mind. I ne- I wouldn't necessarily uh, if 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 you if your table isn't big enough for the the board extension, or you never want to get it for whatever reason, I might think twice about the win gamut. To be honest, and I look, I really like the green and purple factions. I think their their stuff looks cool, and I think their powers are fun. And in terms of variety, they do they are more different than all the other five base game factions. The five base game factions, although very different from each other, they all have uh, speed, which increases the movement rate of all their plastic figures. Uh, the other two ones don't, and the other two ones aren't bound in by a river. They're not defined by crossing the river. So they have a different set of tactical puzzles. They have to manipulate and deal with their very low movement capability rather than the other factions who have to figure out how to cross the river. And that asymmetry I like. And I, I think for the most part it works. So that's that's why I'd prefer Invaders from Afar. The only other minor negative that I have about the expansion is... This is something that was pointed out by Ryan Laucat, actually. He says in his designs he tries very, very hard. Indeed, it's, it's, it's pretty much a categorical rule that he doesn't want there to be cards in the middle of the table that everyone around the table has to be able to read. That everything is going to be in front of an individual player. And that is one unfortunate element of the uh, airships because everyone's airship ability is the same, which I don't object to. They're only represented once in a card, uh, a little cardboard token in the middle. And you often have to pass that around because everyone forgets or they're sitting at the other end of of a massive table and they can't see it. So that element does kind of exaggerate the rules load of the expansion. Everything inside is usually very simple, and I don't have any problem with the rule set, and I think it's really well done in that respect. But when 
people have a people have suddenly a special ability that's not on their own personal board, and it's the first and only special ability in the game that's not on their board, that can make things feel a lot more difficult in terms of the mental strain than it ought to. True, because once you look at Scythe, right, everything is on the board. It tells you where you can put stuff, how you do things, what you can do. It's, it does a fantastic job of, if you just, you know, remind the person it's all on your board, and then they change it completely up by having these things that are not on your board anymore. Yes, I should look, actually... To, to see if anyone has made on Board Game Geek reference sheets where you could just print out a copy of the card, just print out five copies of each of those, and then just at the start of the game be like, here, everyone gets a copy of the tile. So everyone's Shoot, on the There's probably page. a sheet that just has all the powers, so you just pass that around. and Yeah. It requires something to keep thing to keep the visual information presentation as good as the core game, and that's that's a, a little bit of... Uh, I'm just a little disappointed at the way that... True, the other thing is that they're not overly complicated once you nope. get to, once you get to know them then i know when you're introducing it to new players they're gonna have to keep looking but for players that have played a lot they'll, they'll say okay you know all you have to do is give them the title and they'll know you know what's going on yeah it's true in summary i love the wind gambit i think it's great i think uh once all the expansions are out for scythe i think we're probably going to do our scythe then we'll go into a deeper thing on scythe but for now i think the wind gambit for me anyway is the most important expansion until probably this third one comes out. And I like the Wind Gambit. I don't object to playing with it. I don't think it ruins the game or anything, but I prefer Invaders from Afar. Uh, more bang for my buck, and a little bit better in terms of the game state. And that's our view on the Wind Gambit. So, let's move on to our feature topic, which is also somewhat scythe-related. And that is... I was the one who suggested this. The way I entitle it is, everything's gotta have a campaign. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the scythe expansion announcement and the fact that it's going to have a campaign. I'm that's, sure that's completely and utterly it's also circumstantial. In, it's also independent of the fact that we we tried Chargerstone for the first time this week. <laughs> this is also true. Before we go any further, I, I, I just like to point out that there's... Let's disambiguate for a second. There's a number of different ways that the term campaign has been used in gaming. Uh, so obviously there's the sense it's, it's used in war games where it's usually in reference to a historical campaign. Let's set that aside. But for a long time, games have referred to campaigns as just a series of missions. It's like this game has N scenarios and we call that a campaign. Okay, that's fine. Set that aside. That's not so much what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the new sense in which campaigns have been introduced, uh, or at least a resurgence of the sense in which campaigns are sometimes meant, which is to say persistent progress. Now, whether that's strictly speaking legacy elements or whether it's just in the sense of the old school hero quest, Warhammer quest, stuff like that, of having a character who levels up or some combination of the two, whatever. But any game where the consequences of one play session will reverberate through consequences of future play sessions, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about campaigns. And it certainly seems like every other game now has these when it used to be a rare thing. Is that your impression, Walker? For sure. I'm not sure why we do it. We're going to talk about some reasons. I think it's like Blood Bowl was another one that really pushed it forward. Came out before any of these other ones, before Hero Quest. This this feeling of, yes, the first edition Blood Bowl was 1986. Hero Quest was 1990. Wow. I know, right? So, yes, this feeling that your team progresses, that you know, your actions in this game will have consequences on future games. That was another thing I was going to make at the end, but I'm wondering if that's the sort of thing, because in this society that we live in, there's all these sports 
leagues going on and so you know there's like a championship at the end you know think you know as they work up to it or i'm wondering if this is sort of like an overall mental mentality of of a of a long going season building up to a big finale maybe and i'm wondering the other thing i have here is uh, is it a marketing ploy by the company in order to get this game back to the table multiple times you know to draw this game in you know to say that you know well continue on the story you need to get back to the table and that leads into another point I had, which is this, you know, getting together with your friends and creating this story element with your friends, like, you know, going on a journey with your friends, creating this story, manipulating the game mechanics to create this fun adventure. I agree with you that I think to a large extent it's uh, it's marketing because it certainly gives the sensation, on, the, the impression on the part of the consumer that this is a game that you'll be playing over and over and over again. Sometimes this can backfire. I remember when Pandemic Legacy Season 1 came out, and it everybody knew that the campaign lasted 12 months. And thus, you know, potentially you'd only play it 12 times. Of course, you're going to lose a couple times here and there, but uh, so maybe as many as 24, but 12 to 24. And then, like, and then after that, my game is useless. It's been marked up. I can't play it anymore. And the response to most people who were a little, you know, who'd, who'd been around the block a few times was, you know, if you play a game 12 times, you're probably getting your value for your money and then some. You know, I've played El Grande many, many, many more times than 12, and I didn't need a campaign for it. But then, of course, there's probably never going to be a definitive moment where I'm done with El Grande. And there was a moment when I was done with Pandemic Legacy, you know, definitively, uh, even if I were inclined to play more, which I probably wasn't. But that's that's a separate thing. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's I think, a, a marketing stance. Um, back in the day... It was a rare and special thing, like Blood Bowl, like Warhammer Quest, all those, uh, both of them actually Games Workshop products. And it, it, it's a kind of genre that I call fun paperwork. You know, you have to manage the stats, you have to manage all, all the, these details that are not necessarily in game components. And even if they are in game components, it feels like paperwork at the end of the day. And I gotta say, that's definitely something that I like to do. But now, sometimes, I don't want to do paperwork to play a game. It's honestly the case that the market is now so saturated with campaign games that I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the effect that it's having on the overall design space and what we're going to see, because there are a couple of sets of experiences that I really enjoy in games that we're seeing a lot less of. One of them is games where you don't have to, you know, have an app or track things with a paper and pencil or things like that. It's like, look, everything is self-contained. The setup is going to be quick. And once you're done, the session's done. And next time you approach it with a, with a blank slate, there's a lot to be said for that. And I think it's intuitively obvious how another thing is that, uh, I like games with hopeless odds where everyone dies. You know, I, I like Assault on Doomrock, which I've only won a single time, and even then I was kind of cheating with house rules. I like Claustrophobia. I like Space Hulk. I like those roguelike games where you know that it's a meat grinder and people aren't going to come out the other end. And there are ways to mitigate this. Absolutely, there's some campaigns that do it slightly better, like Blood Bowl, for example, you've got an entire team, or Kingdom Death, where it's the expectation that everyone is going to die and instead you're managing the, 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 the group itself. But... Not everything can be gloom. Not everything can be as good as Kingdom Death. Not everything can be a, a, a team-based setup. But when I'm so when a product like Charterstone hits the market, to a certain extent, I ask myself: When playing a Euro, a relatively straightforward Euro management game, do I wish that I could 
influence future instances of this Euro-style management game? Not really. Like, that, that's not introducing anything to me that I felt was lacking. After I'm done playing the ones that I like, like Feast for Odin or something, it's like, ooh, I wish I could hold on to my board. I wish I could carry these ships on to the next thing. I, I wish I could carry some of my money through. It's like, no! Part of the game was building all this stuff. It's the joy in building the stuff, not necessarily in keeping it. it you know, sometimes, and I, I know this is such a cliche, I realize it's such a cliche, but sometimes it's the journey, not the destination. And I'm perfectly happy with just accepting the fact that it's about building all this stuff, not about keeping it, at, like like hoarding it. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, for sure. Like in Charterstone, like remember, it was like we had stuff left over from the last game and we got victory conditions in the first turn where the other players didn't just because it made no sense. It was so confusing. Yeah, that, that well, that leads to another thing. Balancing campaigns is hard. With co-op games, it's no problem. You know, co-op games are, are much more permissive in terms of their balance. And indeed, uh, one of my concerns about Pandemic Legacy Season 2, uh, by the way, is that the past few months have been laughably easy for us. Like, just, it's been borderline trivial. Uh, but setting, setting that aside, that's okay, because it's co-op. In a competitive game, especially a competitive Euro game, balance needs to be real tight, or it can get frustrating, both for the person who's winning and for the person who's losing. And as you said, in a game of Charterstone we had, our stored assets that we'd carried through from a previous game, some people at the table were then immediately able to claim a victory condition on the first turn because they, they held over this stuff. And some other guy who'd specialized in something else was like, oh, well, I guess I don't get that. And that's that's not cool. That's that's no. not enjoyable. No, like in Charterstone, I, I really do have a feeling that it's going to be enjoying the legacy elements as opposed to enjoying the game. I could be sure. wrong, but we'll see. The, the same problem happened in Seafall. Seafall would have these stored assets that really had unbalancing effects in the game. And there were some setups where it was just clear that one person, by virtue of what they were carrying forward, was just going to stomp all over everybody this time. And it's also the case that in Seafall, and I suspect this is going to happen in Charterstone too... There comes a point midway through the campaign where people can look around at the stored assets and the stored points and the stored progress and figure out, yeah, we know who the campaign winner is going to be. The same thing happened in uh, happened in Risk Legacy. If at the end of the campaign, whoever has won the most games wins or who has assembled enough assets, sometimes halfway through it's clear that someone's going to walk away from it. And that doesn't necessarily invalidate playing the game. Of course it doesn't. Like I just said, it's the journey, not the destination. But if you're going to have a competitive experience and you realize halfway through a very long competitive experience that you're not in the running, that's not cool. I was going to ask you some questions. How about Level 7 Omega Protocol? I couldn't remember. Does it have any sort of campaign elements in it? It does not. It has a series of independent scenarios, and they're, they're it's called a campaign, but it's, it's an example of the first type of campaign that I talked about yeah. where they're linked thematically but no assets are carried forward and that's fine if you want to tell a story if you want to have little flavor text in your game that's cool go ahead spin me a story but sometimes I don't want to tell a story sometimes I just want to shoot aliens in the face since we're talking about negatives I'll go through my two points sure sometimes it makes the games more expensive when they include these campaign elements and sometimes the people demand it so much that the designer makes compromises in the game to incorporate the campaign in. 100%. Right? So, I don't know, and the other thing is like things like Massive Darkness. There's games that are just not meant to have a campaign system, and people demand it, and they tack one on, and guess what? It doesn't work. That's exactly the, the example that I think of. Everybody's expectation now, and this is, this is what happens when market expectations become really strong. Massive Darkness 
wasn't going to have a campaign mode, and people demanded one, or people expressed a strong preference for one, they shoehorned one in, and it doesn't work. Similarly, I could imagine a universe in which the des- where, where Adam Poots, the designer of Kingdom Death, would be willing to bow to market pressure. Now, he's not a man who would ever bow to any market pressure whatsoever. He does what he does, and that's that's all he does. But if a game like Kingdom Death had a standalone mode where you just play single scenarios, that would probably be terrible, because Kingdom Death only works because of the campaign elements. The only game... I was trying to think of this. The only game that I can think of that really manages to do both standalone options and campaign legacy-style play successfully is Gloomhaven. But not every game can be Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven was our game of the year last year. It's a brilliant design with innovative card-driven mechanics, and the mechanics are so solid that you're willing to play a standalone scenario, and the character growth options are uh, sufficiently robust that you're willing to play the same character several times. But again, it's co-op, so you don't really care about balance. And we've had a number of scenarios where, again, because of our stored resources, we just show up and all the monsters are like, we're going to fight you. And we're like, no, you're not. And we roll all over them. It wouldn't work in a competitive environment. And it wouldn't work if the card play weren't so robust. So if you think you can design a game as good as Gloomhaven, by all means, go ahead. But good luck with that. And as a result, what you often end up with is games where the earlier sessions are feature locked right? The first game we played with Charterstone, and I don't mean to keep picking on Charterstone. This was true of Seafall. This is true of of, uh, the, of Risk Legacy. This is true of uh, even of Kingdom Death Monster. The first games are borderline trivial. They're like these forced tutorials because they've secreted away lots of the good stuff for later sessions. And I don't know how long Charterstone is going to be doing that dance with us. I have a good sense of, you know, how long it took all those other games to really get going. But if you don't have a really rock-solid core, and the Pandemic games were at least able to rely on the rock-solid core that is Pandemic, a, a, a proven design, a very innovative, solid design, if you don't have a rock-solid core, then the legacy elements aren't even going to make your game... They're, they're not. It's not even a case that they won't improve it. They're going to make your game worse because you're going to feel the need to, to gate-lock content and give us weird nonsense tutorials and we're going to upset the balance in the process. And that's my concern. A number, like maybe Charterstone as a standalone worker placement game might have been something I wanted to, uh, that, that, that really would have stood the test of time. As it is, based on the way that it introduces rules and, and so forth, I'm, I'm getting more and more annoyed with the way that it manages information. This goes exactly into the next game I want to talk about, Mechs versus Minions. All right? Now, this is a fantastic game on all accounts, but I really think they dropped the ball on how they introduced the rules, how they brought them in piecemeal, how how it sort of, you know, it wasn't really an introductory game for some people. Like, if you just took this to a family, you know what I mean, because they bring all these scenarios, they should have just given you a full rule book. This is how you set up a game. This is how you play. And then had this scenario, you know, campaign thing off to the side that you could go through later. You know, okay, now remove these cards or whatever you want to do. Because I think that's really what's stopping it from coming to the table. Like when you say, okay, let's play mechs with, mix with minions, then what do you do? You take it down, you what, pick a scenario at random. They should have had just a standard game mode where you just set it up and this is how you play. I think it would have, because you don't hear about it anymore. Sure, it was like in the top five of that year, but now it, it's gone. Like You're you know, right. I... And the legacy elements there, the campaign elements there, are just so weird. It's not a game type you would associate with that. It doesn't really... There's a lot of funny writing in it. Well, a lot of... I thought I found some of the writing in that game pretty funny, but there's no really overarching story, necessarily. And, uh, yeah, there, there was... I remember one moment that I felt was really cool. You know, the first scenario where we bring out the thing in the secret box. That, that was neat. That was well done. Sure, fine. 
But yeah, it was it, it was a strange decision, and I think it was just them wanting to do the new cool thing. Yeah, and no, I, like I have no problem with with what they did. You know, like the actual scenario itself, everything in it was great. But they really should have had it separate. You know, I mean, this is a full rule book. This is how you would play a standard game. Yeah. Instead of you know, I mean, I know like in in campaign things like uh, Omega Protocol or or Imperial Assault, there's like a a scenario that you would set up. And maybe that's what they wanted to mix with versus minions, but it looked as though like you were taking a part of the story instead of playing a significant scenario that you were taking part of the story. And it wouldn't make sense just to play that one part of the story as opposed to having like a standard game. Maybe I'm not explaining what I mean very well, but I agree completely. There's an expectation and sometimes it's a false expectation, but there's an expectation in a, uh, in a campaign style game that once you play a scenario, you're done with it. You then proceed to the next thing. You don't replay them ever again. And so to a certain extent that, that goes back to what I said before about how sometimes it's a double-edged sword with respect to the longevity of the game. And that also ties into something that you mentioned. Part of the joys of a, of a really, really successful campaign game is that you always play it with the same people and you get them together and this is, you know, this is your shared universe. But the problem is there's only so much room in a gamer's life or even a non-gamer's life for scheduled activity of that nature. You know, if, you, if you're still playing your Gloomhaven campaign, if you've got a Kingdom of Death campaign going on, if you're playing Risk Legacy with somebody, suddenly it's, it, they're no longer games, they're scheduling hassles, and you have to get the same people in together. And again, some games are better than others at letting people swap in and out. I was surprised at how much Charterstone seemed to tell us, by the way, you really want to play with the same people all the time. Because I figured it'd be a little bit more flexible because it's a light Euro game. Again, that's one of the ways in which Gloomhaven is great. People can drop in and out of a Gloomhaven campaign really pretty easily. Other games with campaign elements, less easily. And that's a problem. When you when, when there's the solid expectation, you play a scenario once with the, with, and you're done with it forever, that's a problem. Always have to be the same people. That's a problem. It kind of feeds into what I was saying before. Sometimes these campaigns start feeling like a chore. It has to be the same people, and you have to do all this paperwork. It's like all the bad parts of D&D without any of the freedom. And everyone everyone who's ever done role-playing has been a part of that campaign that just you know lost steam and people couldn't get together at the same times before. And when I'm playing a game like Tigers and Euphrates or El Grande, I don't wish. It's like, hey, could I have the upkeep of a D&D campaign too? Not really. And I'm worried that if this trend continues, that's what we're going to see. Maybe this is just a bubble that's going to burst. Because as you said, it's a very... Not only is it expensive to make a game with legacy elements, it's difficult from a manufacturing angle. I was amazed that Isaac Childress was able to do it basically as a one-man operation uh, when he did Gloom, uh, Gloomhaven, all those different boxes and stuff. When Risk Legacy first came out, uh, a friend of mine who's a game publisher looked at it and said, yeah, only Hasbro could get away with this because it, it would be too difficult for any other company to do it. And he turned out to be wrong. Small publishers can do it. Whether they should do it is another question entirely. Well, now that we're on Gloomhaven, that was another point you sort of touched on as well. It's like, how much time can people commit to one game? And I know you and I have talked about this with Gloomhaven as well. They are expecting, what is it, about 30 scenarios, would you say, for Gloomhaven? For, oh, we're, we're well past that already. So, yeah, so they're expecting you to play roughly, you know, 40 to 50 games of this. Which is going to be different in everyone's group. But that being said... If this is one of six games, is this a game that people are going to buy as a one of six game group? Like it's a hundred dollar price tag. It's not like a, it, it is mainstream. You can say it's mainstream because it's so popular, but 
I'm wondering if this is a game that's mostly purchased with people that have a large collection already. And are you expecting that this game is going to beat out all of these other games that these people have to get to the table 60 times to finish a campaign? And I think that's really asking too much. Again, I'm willing to cut some slack for the games that really do it the best, like Gloomhaven, like Kingdom Death, especially since they're less about communicating a specific narrative with a specific start, middle, and end. And I've I've had a couple of Kingdom Death monster campaigns peter out, and that's okay, because it's less about, as I say, it's less about an overarching narrative and more about communicating a universe and having those interesting things happen. Uh, with Gloomhaven... You know, I'm not particularly grabbed by the story. Again, it's 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 the mechanics and the specific characters that I've I've made that that grab me. So I'm okay with. I would be okay if we never played Gloomhaven again. I really like it. I I, I want to get it back to the table. But if we never played it again because it got superseded by something else, number one, I've gotten my money's worth, and number two, I'd be okay because I, I don't really care what happens to the specific NPCs. I, I do want, however, to give a, a brief shout out to a different way to handle it. And that's the way that Friedman Fries has been making games. He started it with a game called Fabled Fruit. Fabled Fruit is a game that all the rules are on cards, and the cards change over the course of the game. But unlike Charterstone, it's always all on the table. As a result, as you might expect, the game is extremely simple. It was a little too simple for my taste, but the way that it evolves and the way that it handles those persistent elements showed a different way to do it. And recently, he's come out with his Fast Forward series. A whole bunch of games, all, all starting with the letter F. So Fortress, Fear, Flea, stuff like that. And again, they're, uh, everything is managed by cards. But the information presentation is so simple that you don't need to worry about letting things go away. But And the other difference is, because it's just cards and because they're small games, they're very inexpensive. They're small box games. You're expected to play them roughly half a dozen times and be done with it. And quite frankly, for 20 bucks, half a dozen times with a, with a group of people, especially if you can play it all over the course of a couple days, that seems fine to me as a value proposition. And uh, it's... It, I think it's great that people are trying to get into this notion of evolving rule sets, but trying to minimize the deleterious effects of that in terms of information flow, in terms of time commitment. And uh, I'm, I haven't tried any of the fast forward games yet. I'm very much looking forward to trying them because even though I don't, I didn't enjoy Fabled Fruit, I liked what it was doing with the core concept. So there are other ways to do it, suffice to say. And uh, if this trend of campaign style games has a number of offshoots that are more successful, then that's great. But as it is, I hope that its influence in the market doesn't grow. I hope it starts to recede, honestly. True. I just want to change the focus a little bit too. Uh, instead of like just campaigns in general, but how campaigns usually devolve anyway over time. Like when we're talking about Blood Bowl or Necromunda or Gloomhaven, you can all compare it to a game of Zombicide, which ex exceeds over the night to a point where you're unstoppable. And that usually happens in any like D&D &D or any like campaign system where by the end, it's it's a runaway train and, you know, things always devolve into, into craziness, right? So I'm wondering if that is something that they do on purpose where you just, you're constantly restarting anyway. Because usually I always find that games in the first few games are always the most fun. Like the first few games of Blood Bowl, the first couple games of Necromunda where everyone's semi-unequal playing field. There's no weird things coming out of nowhere. Are they always the most fun 
and I'm wondering if is this done on purpose or is this just, just something that happens as a result of of the way campaigns work? Yeah, it's really hard to balance competitive campaign elements. And sometimes the expectation is, or sometimes the way that it does, and I think this is because of sloppy game design, is just by introducing random nonsense. And suddenly everything becomes a rock, paper, scissors game where everyone is crushingly overpowered, but you just have to find the one trick to, to, to overcome somebody. And I agree with you entirely. That's that's the virtue of a game like Zombicide, like Massive Darkness when you're not playing the campaign mode, like any of those other adventure games. You start out as a weakling, you get to have that experience of gro- growing more powerful, and then you get to have the experience of being powerful, and then you're done. You don't have to worry about... Not only do you have to worry less about balance, but you don't have to worry about everything becoming one note and samey, because uh, that was one of the virtues of Gloomhaven having its its retirement mechanism. Characters eventually retire. Now, whether it happens at a, at a good rate, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's too hard to get a character to retire, and you desperately want them to retire, but, you know, they're, they're, they're incredibly powerful and you can't get rid of them. Uh, which, you know, that's just sometimes that happens. But I agree with you. Sometimes I want the full experience in one game. Don't give me a feature-complete game with a full arc right from the start. And campaign elements sometimes ruin that. Obviously not always, but that's a potential problem that, that some game designers aren't conscious of. And if more designs end up being, shall we say, infected with campaign modes that they don't need, that could be a problem. Agreed. Well, that's what we have to say about campaign modes. Sometimes good, sometimes problematic. That's been your episode of So Very Wrong About Games. You can find us on Facebook. That is where we curate most of our comments. We read everything you send us. If you want to get in contact with one of us directly, you can email walker at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E. You can find me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at allthegamesyoulike. We appreciate the time you spent with us this week, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. We're ending now. I'm going to say something simple and not ramble on like a maroon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.